Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006... Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler, and this is Ruler Conversations. We've got a two-part podcast for you today. I want to catch up with James Start, Ruler's photojournalist who is out at the Tour de France to find out how things are going out there. But then the main part of the podcast is going to be an audio celebration of the Puy de Dôme, which will be visited by the tour for the first time in 35 years on Sunday 9th of July. I actually visited the Puy de Dôme with James in May for a feature in Rouleau 120, and we called that feature a lighthouse. The day we went up was a very stormy, windy day. You can hear a bit of background noise from the wind during some of the audio, but we had a really great day exploring the mountain and thinking about the meaning of the tour coming back to it and just reflecting on the past and the future of cycling and life. That feature is in Rouleau 120, which is out now. I should remind all listeners that they can and indeed should subscribe to Rouleau and get 15% off by entering the code PODCAST15. So go to rouleau.cc slash subscribe, enter the code PODCAST15, you'll get 15% off the magazine. Rouleau 120 is our Tour de France mag, and it's a cracking read and just a beautiful magazine. First up, we're going to talk about the 2023 Tour de France, and then we're going to take a deep dive into the world of the Puy de Dôme. I've got James Start on the line from France. He's just about to leave his hotel for the start of stage four of the Tour de France, from Dax to Nogaro. James, are they looking after you? <laughs> Nobody looks after anybody at the Twitter. It's, it's a dog-eat-dog world here. But it's been a, you know, a great first couple of days uh, of racing, and it was a lovely start in the Basque country. And uh, we're back in France, and we're in the thick of it. So you cover the Tour de France from start to finish, and you're right in the thick of the action, taking photographs out on the course and then at the finish. And it was an unusual grand départ, which I loved, what were your impressions of the Basque Country stages? Well, I was looking forward to this start for a long time. Bilbao is a wonderful town. I've been there several times um, with the Guggenheim Museum, and it's a modern city. It's an old industrial port town that's transformed itself into this modern cultural city, and it's a very cool place. And then, you know, of course, the Basque fans are just wonderful. I mean, every time I would 
park my car, they would offer me a beer or they would uh, say, would you like something to eat? And everybody was just very hospitable and it was wonderful. And as opposed to Copenhagen last year, I was actually able to eat dinner after eight o'clock at night, <laughs> which was on the Tour de France is something. It is the most important thing of anyone day. I need to get you a sign, James, uh, like do not feed the photographer, uh, which you can put up for, for fans on the route. You talk about the fans, the atmosphere looked amazing. And it's because the Basque Country is one of those cycling hotbeds like Brittany and Flanders and maybe Tuscany as well, isn't it? And how does it compare to those? Which is the most intense cauldron of cycling fandom? Well, when it comes to fandom, I think the Basque fans get it. I got to say, though, this is some rough riding here. I mean, I don't know why so many people ride bikes down here because there's not one piece of flat road, which I happen to love. And it rains almost every day. It does in Brittany as well. So, I mean, what's that say? It's, as you know, I did a, a feature with my, uh, Mikel Landa and he said, oh, it's just a great place to ride. And I said, wait a minute, it's nonstop hills and it rains all the time. He said, it's a great place to ride if you want to be a tough cyclist. <laughs> and I guess it is. That piece is on the Rulo website. It's really, really interesting. What's been your impression of the racing so far? I know you don't get to watch it on television. You don't get to see it unfold like the rest of us. But on the other hand, you do get to see the riders very up close and personal. You get to observe them at the starts and finish as well. What's been your impression of the racing so far? You know, I give it a high marks. I think the cyclists were very happy to be here. Uh, Peter Sagan, you know, he loves being with the fans. And there was such a rapport between him and the fans. Same with Mark Cavendish. Mark Cavendish, is, he's like all smiles this week. I think he's really enjoying his time here. I think the cyclists were really happy with the start. You can't not feed off, off of the, the passion that was there. One of the things I've noticed, like the last few years, going back some time now, actually, especially, I would say maybe 2019, 2020, especially onwards, the Grand Depart has always been hectic, very dangerous, a lot of crashes and stressful. I got the impression that apart from a couple of high-profile crashes with Enrique Mass and Richard Carapaz, it didn't look so stressful from the point of just peloton politics. And it was only towards the end of the first sprint stage on stage three in Dubai on that I started seeing that. But in general, the Grand Depart looked a bit less intense and stressful than normal. Well, I think it was. And I think it was part of that was because of the, the race route. You know, it wasn't a big sprint stage. We had real climbs every day. The big crash happened when people were kind of jostling for position, I think, as they're getting ready for the final climbs. But it's, yeah, I think that, that calmed things down a bit. But that's also part of the tours. In the last several years, we see the tour looking for challenges, looking for climbs early in the racing to spice things up again, uh, to make the, the racing itself less monotonous, but also to provide different kinds of challenges. And we saw that. I actually interviewed Thierry Gouverneau yesterday, and that, that story will be going up real soon on Rudler. He's the race director. He works hand-in-hand -hand with Christian Prudhomme and designing every kilometer of every stage. And like what he said to me was, one thing I really try to do is, where do I place the climbs? If I want to, if it's going to be a sprint stage, I got to make the climbs, make sure the climbs come early so there's a chance for regrouping. But I often like to put a climb towards right towards the end to give the punchers a chance to shake things up and give people opportunities. And that changes the face of the racing. It makes it more exciting for the television spectator. But it also, I think, changes the way people race. Yeah, and those climbs look tough as well. I mean, we all knew about the Heiskebel from Classica San Sebastian or Donostia Classica. Um, yeah, it's a famous, iconic climb. But that Cote de Pique, which they put at the end of stage one, that looked really, really tough. Right, and the Heiskebel 
we were thinking, okay, this is not San Sebastian, the Classica. So the favorites probably might just kind of watch each other. But then they put bonus sprints at the top. And what does that mean? The guys are going for it at the top. So that, that ensured a great battle on the Esquibel. It's been tremendous, tremendous racing. I'll remember this start. I mean, I, Bill Bow, I love. I love San Sebastian. I really regretted that I couldn't stay there that night because that's one of my favorite spots. It's a lovely city. But now we're back in France and, and you know, Bayonne is a great town as well. So it's, it's been a really great first uh, three days. Yeah, the tour's always scenic. Like I can't get enough of just zoning out on my sofa watching the racing, but then enjoying the landscape in the background. But stage three to Bayonne along the, the Basque coast, that looked particularly special. I was captivated by that landscape. How was it from the ground? It was stunning. Uh, and I was very fortunate, actually, because instead of, well, I wanted to be staying in San Sebastian, but we were staying in a, in a small town along that coast. So the night before, I drove that coast and I realized it was on the race route. I was like kind of checking out spots and stuff. And I, I found a pretty great spot just over on this cliff as they raced across the, over the ocean. It was stunning. The villages, the port towns there were stunning and, and the scenic views were stunning. How's the experience of photographing being? you getting where you need to go? Have you got the shots you needed to get? It's been a rather maddening first couple of days, to be honest. Uh, felt like the first day was on kind of on the back foot a lot, not getting what I needed. At one point, I even left the car running with my keys in the car. When I, when I came back, the Basque fans had the door open and, and were clapping for me as they set me away. It was pretty wonderful. And yesterday was like my easy day, and I got the shots that I wanted. I was so happy with everything. And then technical problems sending in the press room, which is just another, that's a whole other story on its own. But we're always at a fight to get bandwidth uh, in the press room because there's so many people and was just struggling to send. So that's, it's been on a personal level uh, a bit maddening, but that's the Tour de France. I mean, things that work smooth as silk all year long, you get to the Tour de France and it's like one headache after the next. Everything takes so much time here. Just getting to the start, getting into the start town and then actually parking your car can take a half hour every day. And it's just, it's nonstop. But that's the Tour de France. At least you got dinner last night. James, I'll leave you to climb aboard your race moto and follow the tour. Coming soon for you is the Puy de Dome. That's in a few stages time. But for the listeners of Rouleau Conversations, we are going immediately to the Puy de Dome for the feature that we put together on it a few weeks ago, James. This episode of Rouleau Conversations is brought to you by GCN+. The Tours de France are here. They're the greatest races in the world, and you can see every unmissable moment on GCN+. I'm not actually going out for much of the tours this year, so I'm really looking forward to being able to watch every stage from start to finish, ad-free. And for those days where life gets in the way of a cycling fan's real priorities, I can catch up at any time, because there are full replays of both races on demand. For the really busy, there is a selection of tailored highlights packages. You can go for long, short, or just the final kilometres. And... As a cycling journalist, one of the most useful features is the ability to pause and rewind the live coverage, and this feature is great for trying to work out what's happened and why. You can also take the action with you if you're out and about. You can watch GCN Plus on any device. GCN Plus have brilliant commentators and co-commentators and an expert panel of knowledgeable ex-pros who will dissect and analyse the action but also convey the fun and passion of the tours. And you can relive the best moments and biggest talking points on the weekly World of Cycling show, and this airs throughout the season. If that's not enough, you can get all the pre-race information you need with previews, route maps, profiles and start lists all available on the GCN app. With GCN Plus, the coverage continues all year round, 
with coverage of all the biggest races from the road, cyclocross, track and MTB seasons. You'll also have access to a huge collection of exclusive cycling films covering all aspects of the sport, from chats with legends through epic adventures to record-breaking challenges. There are already 150 titles, with more being added every week. A GCN subscription costs as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, and all our listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. Head to gcn.eu slash ruler15 to subscribe and save 15%. The Puy de Dôme is one of the iconic climbs of the Tour de France. For many years, this idiosyncratic mountain, almost slap-bang in the centre of France, was a tour stalwart, and it appeared in the race 13 times between 1952, when Fausto Coppi was the first stage winner there, and 1988, when the unsung Danish rider Johnny Welts won from a break. But after 1988, the mountain fell into disuse in the Tour de France. The tour's infrastructure outgrew the narrow road to the summit, and the limited space at the top, and this was exacerbated when the local authorities ripped up half of the road to install a funicular railway to take tourists to the summit. For many years, it was felt that the tour would never go back. However, the tour has been experimenting in recent years with more adventurous stage finishes in the mountains. The race hosted stage finishes on the summits of both the Col du Tourmalet and Col du Galibier, using more lean infrastructure to reduce the footprint of the race. Similarly, at summit finishes like La Planche des Belfilles and Finaut et Mosson, which was on the 2017 tour route, the race organisation went to places which might previously never have been practical. And so, the Tour de France will finally make its return this summer, in possibly its most challenging ever logistical operation. On the day of the race, which is stage 9 of the 2023 tour, there's going to be a blanket ban on fans on the climb, just as there is on the spectacular Lassie de Montvernier climb in the Alps. The roadway up the Puy is just a couple of metres wide in places, which means that we could be in for a reprise of the famous 1964 duel on the climb between Jacques Anquetil and Raymond Pouledor. And the riders at the top are going to have to get the train back down, which could cause headaches, because while there is a passing place, which means that two trains can be on the climb at the same time, most of the track is single line only. I visited the Puy in May with James Start, and our journey to the summit began on the funicular railway. I'm now on the Panoramique des Dômes, which is the train from the base of the Puy de Dôme to the summit at the climb. The train track follows the old road up the road which is famous from the Tour de France, which spirals its way from the base climb all the way to the summit. I'm here with James Start, Ruler's roving photojournalist. James! When was the last time you were here on the Puy de Dôme? A very long time ago. I believe it was 1992. And back then there was no train. Uh, we just drove up. I remember very well. But it was, you know, very undeveloped. I mean, there was the weather station. Uh, there were hang gliders going off the top and, you know, splendid views. But it was, it was not so developed as it is today. Not saying it's, you know, terribly developed. They've done a wonderful job. But it was much less developed back in the day. I was last here in the summer of 1995, very different weather conditions, and I should explain to our listeners that we are rising up through the clouds of a very rainy May morning up the Puy de Dome. I was here in the summer of 1995, 
Uh, memories are the same. There was, there was no train in those days. We drove up. There were hang gliders coming off the top, parapenters floating around with about a kilometre of empty space underneath them. It looked incredibly peaceful. Uh, but my main memory as a cycling fan is that, you know, of the road up, I was really excited to come here. And we're running parallel to the road now as we ascend the Puy. And it's a little different from back in the day. Back then, it was the road. These days, it's the train track and the roads, half of the road, what used to be the road, running parallel to it. And James, we were talking earlier on to the people who work at the visitor centre, and it hasn't always been just the road up here, has it? No, we learned, was it 1911? They actually had a, a steam train that went up here. It was functioning all the way, I think, until World War II, when the trains and probably the tracks were taken and used for other, other things. Um, but yeah, this is not the first train. You can hear occasionally the whistle on this train mimics the old steam engine whistle. Uh, it's kind of charming. It's, it's very nice. Do you hear that? There's the whistle blow. Perfect timing there. And obviously, this is an iconic place in the history of cycling. The, the most famous, it's one of the most famous images in cycling history of Raymond Pouledor and Jacques Anquetil. And Pouledor came from not far from here. You know, it's a an iconic Tour de France in 1964, the famous photograph of them elbow to elbow up the climb. So it's got a deep, deep history in cycling culture, hasn't it? It, it certainly does. And, you know, it's so funny because that iconic uh, day, they weren't even battling for the win. Uh, they were just battling for the yellow jersey. But that is what is remembered. So uh, it was Julio Jimenez, the great Spanish climber, who actually won that stage. That was one of just many. And there's been so many stories on this. And I'm, I've been dogging uh, Christian Prudhomme for years to come back up here. Ever since he, we did the Tourmalade twice and had to finish up there, it's like, now you got to do Prudhomme. And he's always like, nod his head and he goes, you know, I want to do that too, but I just don't know if it's possible. But they made it possible. I think Prudhomme grew up as a cycling fan in the years when um, the Puy de Dome was still an iconic place in the Tour de France. Of course, the last time the Tour de France came up here was in 1988. And uh, Johnny Veltz, the Danish rider, uh, was the winner riding for the Fagor team. But we're now, we're climbing up through the clouds, James. There is a, a view out there, but it's behind the clouds. But what we can see is what's left of the road. This is the road that the riders will be coming up in the Tour de France. It is very narrow, isn't it? You know, I'm trying to estimate, I'm thinking, there are sections in this road that are not wider than two meters. That's like, that's my height, six feet. And all I can say is they're going to be one dogfight at the bottom for positioning. I mean, it's going to make the, the Ehrenberg Forest and Roubaix look like a, a carpet ride. It's just going to be incredible. The one thing you, you do notice, though, is that all the way out of Clermont, which is almost 10K down the road, it's going up, up and up. So I think the big teams are just going to be putting their guys at the front, driving it and driving it to get their leaders in place once they hit the final, the actual road that it's like a ribbon that goes around this thing. And when they hit that, I think the leaders are going to be at the front and that's about it. And it's, it's a funny climb, this, isn't it? Because on, in mountains, the road follows the gradients and works with the terrain and you get hairpin bends, which you know, moderate the gradients a little. This is a ramp, isn't it? It hits 10, 12% and stays there all the way up. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of the Mont Ventoux. Um, it's shorter, it's more brutal, but it reminds me of that. There's like, what, one sort of switchback, one major turn about midway up the, the Ventoux, but otherwise it's just a big, long, steady ramp, and it's steep. And this is even shorter, but I think it's even steeper in terms of average grade. We've emerged above the tree line now. We're going past the rocky outcrops on the right, which is, I think, where the Pouledor Oncadil photo must have been taken. So it kind of feels exciting to be back here in the same place. 
It's hard to say because as we speak, the fog is just thickening and thickening. It's hard to see what's going on out there, but it's impressive. It's going to be an impressive uh, day. I've been looking forward to this for really, to be honest, for decades. You're a man who takes photographs, James. You're a very visual individual. Can you paint me a verbal picture of the aesthetics of this climb? Because the way the mountain sits above the landscape, its shape, and the spiral road, which you can see like going around and up it, there's no other climb like it, is there? Well, again, I, I do. it does call to mind the Ventoux. What I love so much about the Ventoux is it's just this struggle between the cyclist and nature. You know, you get up above the, the tree line. There's no ski resort up here. There's no reason to come up here. You just, except to get to the top. And it's going to be this brutal, brutal mano mano between the riders and between themselves. And I think it's, it's going to just be a stunning day of bicycle racing. It's just going to be an amazing day. I just think it's going to be a, a day of pure cycling brutality. Logistically, it's going to be a nightmare, isn't it? They're closing all the footpaths and the road to pedestrians. There'll be nobody on the mountain apart from the infrastructure of the tour and the riders. Yeah, I, I remember uh, right, right uh, before Flesh Wallone, we sat down with uh, Tadi Pogachar. And I asked him about this stage, and he's look, very much looking forward to it. But the thing he said is how much he regrets the fact that there are not going to be fans here because uh, the fans really play an element in a race like this. It's just going to be the riders and themselves and the race, and it's going to be, it's going to be stunning. So we're just coming round the final bends now. We can see a couple of runners are jogging up the final stretch of the road. I think the footpath spits out about a kilometre below the summit and you can run up the last bit of the road. So they're just running up there, very brave, because it's, it's about two degrees on the summit today. It's very windy, very cloudy, very cold. So they've made a pretty good effort to run up. We talked about walking up, didn't we, James, and decided to take the train. I'm going to walk down where those joggers were a little bit. And that'll be pretty impressive. And I think we're spending a little time in the Temple of Mercury. What do you think? We're going to go to the Temple of Mercury. So the, the train is just pulling in to the station at the top. At the top, there's a, there's a museum of the Temple of Mercury, which we'll, we'll get onto later. There's a weather station and a few people just waiting for the train back down. So we're going to go and explore the top. Probably going to get a bit cold. Uh, there's a coffee bar up here as well, though. So let's go and explore the Puy Dome. Can't wait. So I'm here with the driver of the train of the uh, Panoramique des Dômes. Can you tell me your name, please? My name is Fabien. Fabien. How long have you been a train driver on the Puy de Dôme? Oh, just since uh, two months. And the view today is very misty, but normally you must have one of the best views of any train driver in the world. Yes, it's a very beautiful view. You can see all the volcano, volcano uh, all around, and uh, it's a very beautiful place, yes. Tell me about the view, the panorama of this uh, region. Ah, you can see all the volcano all around. It's a very beautiful place with the paraglide. There are many paraglides on the Puy-Dôme. This is a special place for yeah. this sport. There are many people coming here. <laughs> it's um, one of the most beautiful places in the world. Yeah. <laughs> We're in your cabin now. We can see a few buttons, switches, dials and keys. Is it very hard to drive this train? No, it's not very hard. I get an um, formation for three weeks. It was a very big formation, intensive. Yeah. But um, after you need to have very much concentrate to not make mistake when you drive. And how many times do you go up and down the mountain? You can drive 10 trains. And when we are with two trains, we, we can get uh, 60 trains in a day. Yeah, super. I can see you're looking at your watch and you have a schedule. Thank you very much for your time and enjoy your next journey down. Thank you. Bye-bye.
This episode of Ruler Conversations is also brought to you by BMC. At Ruler, we've been listening to a few other great cycling pods and we want to share one of our favourites with you. The Rider's Digest, powered by BMC, takes you into the world of bikes with unparalleled access to everything. From getting inside the World Tour and Mountain Bike World Cups, through to on-the-ground access at some of the biggest events. They also take deep dives into industry secrets and cutting-edge bike tech. Champion riders like Fabian Cancellara, Cadell Evans and Greg Van Avermaet are familiar voices on the pod, and they're mixed in with next-level sound design to bring you right into the visceral world of cycling. If you want to experience a different perspective on the cycling world, then search for the Riders Digest wherever you get your podcasts, or hit the link in our show notes. And now, back to Rouleau Conversations. Once James and I got to the top, we were reminded of why the Puy de Dôme has such a meaningful place in the hearts of cycling fans of a certain age. It's a beautiful mountain, very different from the Alps and Pyrenees. The Puy de Dôme is a lava dome, which means it's more bulbous and rounded than the jagged peaks you get with the high mountains. It forms part of a chain of similar, smaller bulges in the Massy Central landscape, this range of green hills just to the west of Clermont-Ferrand is called the Chêne des Puits. The climb is also given further prominence by the huge mast of the weather station at the summit. Sometimes architecture in the mountains can be intrusive and out of place, but the mast actually adds to the aesthetics of the Puy de Dôme. It adds an offset asymmetry to the mountain, like an exclamation point, that makes the silhouette instantly recognisable. Like Mont Ventoux, Mont Blanc and the Matterhorn, the Puy de Dôme is a mountain with charisma. Furthermore, on a sporting level, the road up is relentlessly steep. The peloton will climb for about nine kilometres out of Clermont-Ferrand, and that'll take them to the foot of the final ramp. And that just riding uphill for nine kilometres to get to the bottom of the climb is going to tire out the legs. And then the actual climb to the Puy de Dôme is just over four kilometres long. But while it's short, it's 115 to 12% consistently all the way up without the slightest bend in the road to mitigate the gradient. And it wraps its way round the mountain in a spiral which turns over 360 degrees. James and I walked down from the summit to have a look at the final few hundred metres. And then we went to visit the main tourist attraction on the climb, the ruins of a temple to the Roman god Mercury. So James and I are now standing somewhere in the final kilometre, maybe 300 metres to go, 200 metres to go at the very last round. We strolled down to where the road meets with the Chemin de Chèvre, which is the footpath up. Uh, there's a sign on the road which forbids walkers from going down any further. We took a walk down, didn't we, James? We bumped into a couple of hikers. Still very misty and rainy up here, very atmospheric. It is. Uh, the hikers were rather demoralised. They're sitting on their backpacks about only about 300 metres from the top, but they'd walked all the way up the Chemin de Chèvre and were just totally disillusioned. You know, when it's cold, cold up here and foggy, and, and they're like, ah, uh, we, we are demoralisés. And it's like, well, you're only almost there, kids. Just keep going. And I said, oh, really? Okay. So when we came back up, they weren't there anymore. So You asked them if they were waiting for the train. <laughs> exactly. I didn't know the train stopped there. I didn't think it did, but I, I thought maybe they're waiting to get a picture of the train coming across. You're at that junction where the road actually crosses the tracks. So I said, well, maybe they're waiting for a picture or something. Maybe there's something going on here that I don't know about. I don't know. But they were just tired and looking for a little breather. And they said they were looking for, not looking for the train, but for courage. <laughs> courage. So hopefully, I guess they found it because they're no longer here. But this is a very interesting section. As you mentioned earlier, we're walking up here and 
this old granite rock has that's been chiseled out all the way around the the road is right here just kind of kissing the roadside on one side and on the other side are these sort of iron supports for the train that comes up and it's we're almost at the top so it's just it sort of takes you into the station there as we kind of come around this last turn we can see the the final rise where the riders are going to come and boy their eyes are going to be popping out by the time to get here because this is steep and hard yeah, so we ascertained from the people at the visitor centre that the finish line will be at the very top of the road, yeah. just in front of us here. And just the final part is the steepest part of the whole climb. It's one of those kind of Mur de style ramps that you sometimes get. It's going to be a great photograph and it's going to really make the rider's legs hurt. It is, and I think I'll take a picture right now as we speak because it's going to be, like you said, a great photograph. And uh, it's going to be really hard because about 100 meters down, they actually cross over the train tracks and they have to take a turn right and then left. And that's at this at the grade that we're talking about here, that's gonna take physical energy. That's gonna take something out of them. And then they have this last true kicker. 200 meters or so? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, yeah, it's it's mur de hui, flesh wallon kind of thing, but it's coming at the end of four, nearly five kilometers of climbing and they're just gonna be, eyeballs are popping out. Yeah, we tried to identify, I was looking at the photograph of Angusil uh, and Pulador, trying to identify the rocks that they were in front of, we tried to find the place where they were having that battle, couldn't quite, I don't know, the rocks do look pretty, sim, but I do love the, like you, I love the contrast of the organic granite on one side of the road, and then the kind of brutalist concrete slabs and train infrastructure on the other side. As we say this, James, when we walk up the very final 50 metres, I can feel warmth on my face, the sun is coming out, and as a photographer, that's going to be particularly exciting for you. It's going to be. Are you Ancatil or Pulidor today? Uh, we're Elba 12, we're at the final stretch here. I feel more like the Lantern Rouge, James. <laughs> we are the Gruppetto, and there might only be, no, I think the Gruppetto is going to be a lot bigger than two guys coming up here, uh, come Tour de France time. So we have exactly the view that the riders will have. Uh, maybe they'll be staring directly at the road in front of them, but as you come to the very top of the climb, we can see cloud above us, bit of a break in the cloud to the left, and opening up the road just dips slightly, flattens out at the top, and we come to where the finish line is. And I guess the next time we're here. God, the altitude's getting to me a bit. Yeah. Getting puffed out. It's quite a steep, well, a steep climb. And the, you know, this is how steep the finish line is. Yeah. And next time we're here will be this summer at the Tour de France. I can't wait. I can't wait. It's going to be a special day. I've been waiting almost 30 years for this. So it's really going to be great. It's going to be exciting. So James and I have walked up from the finish line up to just below the weather station, which dominates the skyline at the Puy-Dôme, when visible. And we're just at the Ruin du Temple de Mercure, the ruins of Mercury's temple up here. Uh, an old temple um, from Roman times, which was about 2,000 years ago. So I've been looking up Mercury, James. Mercury is a Roman god, obviously. He's the god of financial gain, eloquence and communication, which is apt for us as uh, journalists. Also the god of travellers, luck, trickery and thieves, which maybe arguably makes him also the patron god of the Tour de France. It's you know, crazy that the, the Romans were coming up here over 2,000 years ago. It's just on one of those special places and you can see why. Yeah. I remember from my visit in 1995, before the visitor centre and everything was built, the ruins were just ruins and you could get in among them and kind of clamber over them a bit, try not to damage them. But you could get in amongst them, it was just a kind of ruin. But 
now it's fenced off and they've reconstructed parts of it in modern stone, which I'd say doesn't enhance the effect so much. I can tell you're not a fan, but uh, if I want to defend them, and I will, it's only a small part that's been redone in stone, and I think it's just to give the viewer the idea of what this place must have looked like 2,000 years ago. And it does help, and it's not neon colors, there's no lights or anything, it's just stone. No bright colors, James. This is France. There will be a sonnet lumière up here during summer, mark my words. But And I would not be surprised to see that temple draped in yellow come tour time. On a wider theme, it's this one of the things I love about cycling, and we talk about it often, that cycling as a sport is interesting because of the places it takes us and its interaction with the real world. And here we have an example of an iconic location for the Tour de France, which is gonna be a, you know, one of the key stages and one of the most televisual and beautiful stages this year's tour. But it takes us to a place where there's a Roman temple, there's a weather station, so we're intimately linked with the weather, the history of the place. And another example of the Tour de France and cycling and the real world leading into each other. Or soul. That link between history and culture and everything is what gives cycling its soul and what makes it so special. We are not in a stadium. This is an amazing stage, but it is not a stadium and uh, it's unique and th these, these sorts of stages are unique to the sport of cycling and that's, it, it's inherent in, in what we call the soul of the sport. The Tour has finished on the Puy de Dome 13 times, so there is a rich racing history. First time the Tour went there was 1952, which was the first year the Tour really experimented with summit finishes. You could argue that they went overboard. They put Alpes and Sestriere on the route and then the Puy de Dome. And the summer of 1952 coincided with one of Fausto Coppi's best ever runs of form. The Italian won all three summit finishes, along with the time trial, plus the mountain stage to Poe. Sestriere he won by seven minutes ahead of the second-placed rider. Going into the Puy de Dom stage, which was the 21st out of 23, he led second-placed Stan Ockers by 27 minutes. Did he take it easy on the Puy? No, he did not. He won that stage too, winning the Tour by 28-17 in Paris. In 1964, there was a famous battle between Jacques Anquetil and Raymond Poulidor on the climb. Poulidor was in the ascendancy, but Anquetil bluffed him almost all the way to the top, trying to pretend that he was stronger than he actually was and fearing an attack from his Auvergnat rival. Photographs show their elbows clashing as they rode up side by side, cheered by the crowd, Onkatil refused to let Poulidor take the lead, lest he realise that Onkatil was faltering. In the end, Poulidor realised too late that Onkatil was on the ropes and he dropped him. But the 42 seconds that he gained meant that he was still in second by 14 seconds. Ironically, considering that the battle between them was one of the most famous in the entire history of cycling and has even taken on a life of its own, they only came third and fifth on the stage. In 1975, the Puy de Dome was the location of an incident in which Eddie Merckx was apparently punched or struck by a fan. At this point, he was in the yellow jersey and looking good for a sixth tour win. However, the injury sustained in the incident winded him and he claimed to feel the effects for days. He conceded 34 seconds on the climb to eventual tour winner Bernard Thévenet, but would go on to lose the yellow jersey the very next day in the Alps. It was the last day he ever wore yellow. There have been many illustrious winners on the Puy, Federico Bajamontes won a time trial there in 1959, and tour winners Felice Gimondi, Luis Ocaña, Lucien Van Imp, and Jupp Zotemelk all won there. 
but lesser-known riders have also had their day on the Puy. The last two winners there were Eric Mackler and Johnny Welt, both unsung heroes of the 1980s. Of course, more racing history will be written into the legend of Puy de Dome this summer, but it's also a perfect day to reflect on what has been and what is to come, and on what cycling and the tour means to us all. So I fortified myself with a lunch of aligo, which is a speciality dish of mashed potato and melted cheese and assorted Massy Central meats, um, which is actually a speciality from the Aveyron region, which is very southern edges of the Massy Central, almost inside of the Pyrenees, I guess. And we're at the Puy-Dôme, we're a bit further north, um, but they were kind enough to, you know, they, they were serving aligo at the restaurant at the top and James and I felt that it was the most appropriate and region-specific dish we could find. Also, such a cold day up here, it's actually a very warming dish as well. Also washed down with a bottle of Cuvée de Volcan, which is a Auvergnat red wine, which hopefully the acid will help digest the mashed potato and cheese, which is quite heavy. Being on top of the Puy de Dôme is quite meaningful for me on a personal level. It's a very nostalgic place for me, both for its cycling links and personal links. We've actually got a feature in the current edition of Rouleur, The Soul magazine, number 119. And we commissioned a feature from a Canadian writer called Guy Dixon, which is called Romancing the Old. And the piece is about the relationship that cycling fans have with the sport and how the era in which you get into cycling kind of leaves its imprint on you and you always look back on it with great nostalgia no matter no matter when it was no matter how long ago it was that era that you got into cycling somehow seems more colorful more immediate more meaningful than everything that came afterwards and for me that era was the 1980s now guy's feature starts now with the opening line something new was in the air in the mid 1980s discernible but not wholly describable a change in culture and for me it was happening in Vancouver and it's a cracking open line and I'm a sucker for real great opening lines and features that one really grabbed me uh, for me something was also in the air in the mid 1980s it was happening in Exeter in my case but that was when I discovered the Tour de France the race had started being shown for 30 minutes a day on Channel 4 Channel 4's remit was to show more unusual um more esoteric subjects so they did cover football but it was Italian football and they started covering cycling 30 minutes a day through that I discovered the Tour de France and the first tour that I took notice of was 1985 and the first tour that I really kind of followed from start to finish was 1986 uh, the, the year that Greg LeMond defeated Bernardino. And I was never sure how I felt about that because I was a Francophile, I remain a Francophile, and I, was, I kind of had more sympathies with Bernardino at the time uh, than Greg LeMond, although I, you know, I liked both riders. And that year was a great battle between them. They were teammates. And one of the stages finished on the Puy de Dôme. I remember the, the mountain struck me when I watched it on television. First, because on a racing level, that's where Eno definitively conceded the... Tour de France to Le Monde. He lost more time and Le Monde was safe in the yellow jersey, which he would go on to win in Paris. But also, I just remember being struck by the aesthetic of the mountain. I'd never seen anything like it. It just stood out from 
the rest of the landscape. A weather station on top gave it its own idiosyncratic shape. And I just remember thinking that seemed like a really interesting mountain. The Tour de France came again in 1988 when Johnny Welts was the winner. And I was a fully fledged cycling nerd by that point. But that era of cycling to me is more colorful and more meaningful than everything that's come since because it's when I discovered the sport. The yellow jersey seemed more yellow, the colors of the peloton seemed brighter. And for me to be up here on the Puy Dome almost 40 years after I discovered the sport is quite meaningful. And you know, the Puy Dome's meaningful to me on a personal level as well because I spent a year in France as an assistant anglais teaching at a French school and I was living in a town called Moulin, which is about 100 kilometers north of here. But I'd occasionally come here for day trips and climb the mountain and came up here several times in 1994, 1995. Um, so for the Tour de France to be coming back here again in 2023 adds another layer of meaning for me on this climb. It develops my relationship with the climb. I'll always have my memories of the tours of the mid 1980s where the, the sport imprinted itself on my mind. And I'll always have the memories of coming here with my friends. I was living in France and spending days up here, just walking around, enjoying the scenery and um, atmosphere. And this summer, that story will be added to as the tour comes up here for the first time. For me, like the, the fact that it's come back, it reinforces my relationship with the sport. There'll be a new chapter written in the sport's history. I get the sense that Christian Prudhomme and ASO are a nostalgic organisation. Obviously, they have to change with the times. They have to keep moving and developing. And you know, the sport keeps on moving and developing and changing. But when you see the Tour de France in the flesh, I'm always struck by the fact that it is a very nostalgic thing, for better and for worse. Uh, for the people of France, it, it's summer. And um, when they come to visit the Tour de France, it's an emblem of the fact that the summer is here. That's a very positive thing. But at the same time, you could say that the Tour is a little backward looking because every, every day at the stage start, they wheel out the old riders and maybe that's less engaging for younger fans of the sport and keeps the average age of the fans maybe a little bit older. But you know, as I said, the nostalgia of the Tour de France can be interpreted as both a positive and negative thing. Uh, but I'm just getting to the, the summit here. It's just me and the clouds and a few birds. So in the latest chapter of my history with the Tour de France, there's been a story of very cold wind and very cloudy skies. I hope the weather's better when the tour comes here in summer. Well, that was our visit to the Puy de Dôme, and I really can't wait for the tour to return and to see what the modern peloton does on this historic storied climb. We're going to finish now with the audio read of my feature on the Puy de Dôme, A Lighthouse, which appears in Ruler 120. A Lighthouse, written by Edward Pickering. The French writer, critic and man of letters. Alexandre Vialat, who made his home in Clermont-Ferrand for several years between the two world wars, was enamoured with the Puy de Dôme, the asymmetric green lava dome that towers over the city from the west. Vialat, who wrote a regular and occasionally absurdist column in the city's most prominent newspaper, La Montagne, compared the Puy to a beautiful bride, 
but apparently once also attributed it the wrong altitude, overestimating by some distance its true height. Violat was indignant in responding to the complaints. I have been criticised a lot for having exaggerated the altitude of the Puy de Dôme, he wrote in April 1967. There is some ingratitude there, the Puy de Dôme was too small for a long time. He then went on to explain how best to get an appreciation of its true size. I suspect my critics of never having climbed the Puy de Dôme. If they had done it on a bicycle, as I did for two years, three or four times a week, they would have quickly realised that it is much higher than you think. Violate understood something that cycling fans and anybody who spends time in the mountains also well know, that there is something of the transcendent in being up there in the sharp air and thin breeze of a mountaintop. The writer Robert McFarlane, in his book Mountains of the Mind, compared it with religion. Mountain worship is a given to millions of people, the vertical, the ferocious, the icy, all these are now automatically venerated forms of landscape, images of which permeate an urbanised Western culture, increasingly hungry for even second-hand experiences of wildness and wilderness. But he also recognised in the urge to visit high places a more scientific urge, to see further and more deeply into things. Time and again one encounters the successful mountain climber comparing himself to what the Greeks called the kataskopos, the looker-down, the heavenly observer, suddenly and marvellously blessed with a cartographer's perspective on the world. I have come to the Puy de Dome in search of that cartographer's perspective and also to maybe experience a little of the transcendence. It is a return for me. I have not stood atop this mountain since a misty day in the summer of 1995. It will also be a return for the Tour de France after an even longer period. The riders of the Tour have not raced up the Puy de Dome since the 1988 event. Transcendence hits in unpredictable ways and in the mountains it often has something to do with the weather. The first time I ever came up here in 1994, it was a sunny, chilly autumn day. The view stretched with glass clarity for 50 or 100 kilometres in all directions, while a couple of dozen paragliders floated on benign thermals rising up the mountain from below, sitting comfortably and meditatively with a kilometre of empty space below them. That misty day in 1995, on the other hand, was quite eerie. All around was summer and heat, yet the top of the Poi was enshrouded in soundless, chilly fog, with hardly any visibility at all. This time around, for Rouleur's visit, the weather is stormy, huge scudding clouds are blowing up fast from below and over the summit, and the wind is freezing, four degrees in mid-May. The huge mast of the weather station at the top appears and disappears. Sometimes there is nothing to see but thick wet gloom, then the clouds blow past and there's a glorious sunlit view of Clermont-Ferrand and the surrounding Champ des Puis. But there's far more to the atmosphere and meaning of the Puy de Dôme than its weather and even its view. It has presence, character and an idiosyncratic bit of road engineering, of which more later, but what pervades the air around it, like a constant plume of smoke from a volcano, is the nostalgia. The Puy de Dôme was a regular fixture on the tour between its first appearance in 1952 and its most recent in 1988. Until L'Alpe d'Huez equalled it in 1987 and then surpassed it in 1989, it was the most often used summit finish in the Tour, with 13 appearances. Why wouldn't it be? It sits in the centre of France, a convenient waypoint between north and south, and east and west. It's only 350km south of Paris as the crow flies, so the organisers could use it as a final sting in the tail, en route back to the capital. Or, if you want to make the bit in between the Alps and Pyrenees more interesting, 
send the riders into the massive central and up the poi. The tour didn't go back after 1988 for a mix of reasons. The gigantism of the modern race outgrew the narrow corkscrew road to the cramped summit, and then the local authorities laid a funicular railway which halved the width of the road, and it was assumed that was that. Nevertheless, a few years ago, tour boss Christian Prudhomme started making noises about wanting to return. Successful experiments with scaled-back summit finish operations on the Col du Tourmalet and Galibier, La Superplanche des Belles-Files and Finho-Emosson showed what was possible, and Prudhomme even dropped mischievous false flags into interviews, speculating that perhaps the tour could return for 2022, the 70th anniversary of its first appearance. The rumours were confirmed when the Puy de Dome was announced for the 2023 tour route, and though there'll be no spectators allowed on the climb on the day, there were an estimated 300,000 for a time trial on the Puy in 1983, it's likely to be a visually spectacular stage. The Tour de France exists, for better and worse, in a strange tension between its history and its future. It's a modern, international, forward-looking sporting event with massive brand recognition which makes a lot of money and the organisation that makes it all work is slick as hell. It is also at the same time as close to a physical manifestation of pure nostalgia as you can get. It is the summer of all French people's youth, packed into a moving carnival that, all the way through its present, constantly refers to its own past. Of course, the stories of each new tour are written over those that already exist, like painted names on a mountain road. But the tour is overtly conscious of its history. Nostalgia and folk memory are the foundations upon which it is built. Prudhomme himself is fluent in the language of bike racing's past, and he talks easily about tour history. I sense that taking the race back to the Puy is scratching the same itch for Prudhomme that old rockers feel when they buy tickets to see the Eagles. In the case of the Puy de Dome, that nostalgia mainly manifests through the medium of the famous photograph of Jacques Anquety and Raymond Poulidor, taken during the 1964 tour, elbows clashing as they rode up to the summit. It's on the front of the special edition magazine La Montaigne published to celebrate the tour's return, and it may be the most famous cycling photograph of all time. The photo represents halcyon days, and also a whole range of tensions in cycling fandom and society between tradition and modernity, town and country, and ego and ID. The tour idealises it, but really any cycling fan who can actually remember the summer of 1964 will be in their mid-70s by now. However, nostalgia also moves with the times. I've seen that photo of Anquetil and Pulidor so many times now that I can almost hear the words, an exhausted, glassy-eyed Anquetil defended the yellow jersey by 14 seconds in my head when I look at it. But my own nostalgia for the Puy de Dome is more tied up in the tours of the late 1980s. I wasn't around for Anquetil and Poulidor, or for Eddie Merckx getting punched in the kidneys by a spectator, 1975. And the last few visits the tour made to the Puy were relatively straightforward affairs, but the mountain itself struck me as a young cycling fan, as did the bright colours of the team kits. The photographer Graham Watson took a brilliant series of photographs on the Puy in 1986, Bernard Hinault in the polka dot jersey, Dupe Zoetemelk in the world champions jersey, which are as evocative to me as the Anquetil Poulidor photo was to the next generation down. And so when I stand on the summit of the Puy, fingers numb, shivering in the unseasonal cold, I can feel the nostalgia being carried in on the winds. That's close enough to transcendence for me. The architect Frank Lloyd Wright once said, No house should ever be on a hill or on anything it should be of the hill belonging to it. 
Hill and House should live together the happier for the other. I feel the same way about what human beings have done with the Puy de Dome. In my opinion, the observatory and antenna on the summit of the Puy are an improvement, giving the whole picture a focal point and aesthetic balance, and emphasising the asymmetry of the mountain. The same is true of the road railway which spirals around the mountain, turning more than 360 degrees from bottom to top. There are not many climbs in cycling like this. The Puy de Dome is an emblem, she said. It is the emblem of our department and it has given its name to our department. It is this region's Eiffel Tower. The view from the summit is fantastic, majestic. You have the impression of being above everything. As Clermontois, the Puy de Dome is our lighthouse and you can see it from a very long way away. When we people from Clermont-Ferrand are returning from our holidays, when we see the Puy in the distance, we can say, we'll soon be home. The Puy is the kind of place people like to come back to and the tour is no different. Cycling has its holy sites, which are an indefinable combination of landscape, road engineering, racing history, aesthetics, and most of all, feeling. The Mur van Gerardsbergen, Mont Ventoux, Avenue des Champs-Élysées, Mur de Huy and Piazza del Campo are examples. The Puy de Dome is another. But this is a cycling magazine, and we should therefore talk about the actual road up the Puy and what it will give to the Tour de France. Unlike most of the mountain roads we know from cycling, the road was first designed as a railway, which explains the spiral path to the summit. Hairpin bends do not work well for trains. The railway was replaced by a road in 1926, and it was much easier to lay the road over the path that already existed. In 2012, the new railway was laid on the inside half of the existing road, which now exists as a narrow path, wide enough for one vehicle, with passing points. What cycling fans need to know about it, other than that it's going to look stunning in the helicopter television shots, is that it's steep and relentless. It's around 12% from bottom to top, in one single pitch, with nary a bend to relieve the gradient over four and a bit kilometres. The final 200 metres or so pitch up towards 17 or 18%. As it comes off the back of a hilly but not necessarily very selective stage, it's likely to be a bun fight going into the final climb, There'll be nine kilometres of easy to steady ascent from Clermont-Ferrand to winnow out the peloton a little, but somehow around 150 riders are suddenly going to get squeezed into a road that is wide enough for definitely two and maybe three riders. Then it's a 12 or 13 minute ramp test to the summit, every rider for themselves. The Puy de Dome road's shape recalls the description of hell in Dante's Inferno. The levels of hell are always described as circles, but Dante actually described his journey through the underworld as following a spiral path. The tired cyclists of the Tour de France may relate. It's apt that Rouleur's trip to the summit of the Puy de Dôme unwittingly takes place just a few days before Mercuralia, the ancient Roman celebration of the god Mercury, on May 15th. The observatory and antenna may dominate the modern skyline of the Pi, but the first major piece of architecture on the summit was the Temple of Mercury, built in the second century. Mercury was the god of, among other things, financial gain, commerce, eloquence, communication, travellers, trickery and thieves, which you could argue might also make him a perfect Roman god for the Tour de France. The temple lay undiscovered for centuries, before it was unearthed during the building of the first observatory in the 1870s. The first times I came up here, it was an atmospheric and photogenic ruin, these days it has been partially restored, but not necessarily improved. 
The aim of the restoration was to protect the remaining walls from the extreme winter weather and to show tourists how the temple would have looked in its heyday, but it's an ersatz and incongruous imitation. If ASO need a warning about the perils of misplaced nostalgia, there is one here, in the form of granite breeze blocks thoughtlessly stacked in the shape of a Roman temple years out of time. But the temple is also evidence that the Puy de Dome has always drawn travellers. In Roman times they came to pray to their gods, in the 19th century they came to do scientific research, in the 20th century it became a centre of pilgrimage for cycling fans. These days tourists take a train up for selfie opportunities. And this summer the Tour de France returns, two old friends reunited, reflecting on the memories. You have been listening to Rouleau Conversations. Rouleau Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Rouleau magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Rouleau and on Instagram at Rouleau magazine or visit our website at rouleau.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.